Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1951, which is the year Wright Morris published two of the three stories we're talking about today, The Sound Tape and The Character of the Lover. The third, The Cat in the Picture, is from 1958. I'm talking about these stories with my short story team, Alex Higley and Willie Fitzgerald. Alex has a book of short stories called Cardinal and a novel called Old Open. Willie is currently the Mary Sabasabo uh, editorial fellow at American Short Fiction Magazine. This is the second of three short fiction episodes that we're going to do together. Uh, we already talked about Alice Monroe a few episodes back. Those were Willie's choice. These are Alex's. And the third of these episodes will be mine. Uh, I don't yet know what they're going to be. I'm working on it. Uh, to summarize these stories, in the sound tape, the narrator talks about a wealthy family that lives across the street from him. There's a flagrantly irresponsible wife and a husband who likes to lecture people about things. And they have a baby. The narrator is surprised by how dedicated the father is to the baby. She grows into a little girl with almost the exact same personality as the father, lecturing people and generally being a little fixed in her thinking. Uh, at the end of the story, the father kills himself and the little girl after the presidential election where Truman defeats Dewey because um, they believe that there's no point in living if Truman is president. Then, in the second story, the character of the lover, uh, it's about a man called Dr. Hodler who goes to a drugstore to buy remaindered copies of his own books and other books in the hopes uh, that this will influence the clerk who sells them, Robert, to become interested in the books and Dr. Hodler himself, by extension. And the plan works! And Robert um, Robert does like him and, and tells him that he likes to think of himself as being similar to Jay Gatsby from The Great Gatsby, which is one of the books Dr. Hodler bought. Uh, he invites Dr. Hodler to his very odd Park Avenue apartment, which is just a converted bathroom and has a bathtub, sort of the central piece of furniture. Um, they have lunch together just this one time and it has this undercurrent of passion and excitement and sort of the thrill of life. Uh, then Robert is fired from the drugstore and Dr. Hodler finds that he's joined the Navy. Uh, knowing that, he believes that Robert will be killed. Then the last story, The Cat in the Picture, is about a retired couple with a comfortable life. The husband paints watercolors, the wife writes book reviews, the wife has a cat, the husband resents the cat because the wife is so attached to it. Uh, he annoys the cat in sort of ways that he can pretend are good-natured or accidental. Um, it leads up to him poisoning the cat with his paint. Uh, he goes to a hotel while the wife takes the cat to the vet, and instead of coming to make up and resolve their fight, the wife delivers his things in a suitcase that also contains the dead cat. And the husband wonders if the cat was already dead or still alive when she packed it into the suitcase with his clothing. I am going to now go to our conversation so Alex can explain more about the author of these stories. So do you want to do you just introduce this guy awesome. a bit. yeah i would love that like talk yeah. about like why did you choose these stories who is this author yeah, yeah. to orient us in his, in his work in his life yeah um i came to the work of wright morris through the photographs of robert adams robert adams is just a photographer i love and if you hunt around enough on google image shirts one of the other photographers that'll pop up is, is Wright Morris. And, um, uh, 
I was immediately intrigued because he was doing photo text type stuff. Um, photo text is the word that he prefers for those publications. Um, uh, you know, I think most readers are familiar with like, let us now praise famous men, Walker Evans, James Agee, and the stuff that Wright Morris was doing early on um, was much more, much shorter text and more photography dominated, which I found kind of fascinating. Um, it was, it seemed kind of unique and that felt modern to me, that kind of relationship, not leaning so much on the prose. And so, so was when just, was that happening? Was like when was he doing that? Yeah. So he was doing that even before he seriously started writing novels or short stories. Um, so he like he had stuff in MoMA before he published his first novel. Um, there was kind of an independently published project called The Inhabitants. Um, and then it was maybe like eight to 10 years after it was independently published or with a smaller publisher, this photo text. Um, uh, Scribner put it out and it was it was like widely published. Um, and one of the things I was reading just in preparation for this episode was that Morris's plan was kind of to more or less pair fiction um, with his, with his photographs kind of like in perpetuity. Yeah. And when one of the, one of the publishers kind of said, ah, no, that's not going to work. He, he changed his approach and that led to him focusing more on fiction. And then in the late fifties, he kind of, completely abandoned taking photographs, which is I, surprising. I want to know a little more about look, his history as a photographer, yeah, if you don't mind, like just, just one more, like where yeah. did he, I mean, I, I tried to do some reading on him and tried to learn more about him. Obviously yeah. I don't know as much as you, but um, like, how did he pick up his first camera? Where did he get that education or? Yeah. So he, he didn't study in college formally. Uh, he went to Pomona college Um and then there was a there was a brief stint at a, another university before that, but uh, he took a trip to Europe, and I think he just ended up picking up photography while in Europe, and that ended up being a trip he ended up writing about later in his life, and kind of a big split in his life um, where he decided he really wanted to pursue the making of art. When he came back to the United States, he took a a road trip all across country and was taking pictures, a lot of which. Um, are the ones that are he's known for. If you do a Google image search on Wright Morris, a lot of these pictures are the ones that he was taking on this road trip when in his in his mid twenties. He was born in nineteen ten, so you know we're talking about the thirties. Yeah. Um, okay. And um, yeah. So because I, one thing that that comes to mind when you're saying that is that you know photography during the Great Depression, um, obviously there was there was kind of a um, like there was some excitement in society about it, whether or not you were explicitly funded by the WPA. Um, there was a feeling that people's lives should be documented with good quality photography. Um, right. And I also think that the pairing of words and text, like if you think about comic books and you think about those, mm. just how, um, how much creativity, but like cultural dominance, even if it was seen as, you know, trashy, but it, I still think that there was a lot of energy inside the pairing of words and texts and, and um, 
uh, trying to figure out what can be done within that medium, a lot of experimentation. Uh, and so that's, it's just interesting to sort of put it into what I'm reading with these short stories here, because he definitely has the photographic way of describing characters. Yeah. 100% characters. And, and um, there's two things he will and interiors. Um, he, he is, yeah. he's really yeah. an incredible uh, describer of like space and, um it's it's honestly very surprising to me that he doesn't have any really formal training it sounds like in photography because i i don't consider myself super well versed in photography but like the photos i've seen of his are really like strikingly good they are they're like some really beautiful um and he really has like an incredible grasp of like deep shadow and light and all this stuff and these things that seem like really fundamental to all the really great photographers and to hear that he didn't really study it, picked it up on a whim and then abandoned it. Um, maybe at the whims of a kind of a publication, uh, kind of diktat is that's, that saddens me. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally agree, Willie. Um, also something you said, Catherine, I thought was really interesting because, so Wright Morris did have a WPA job uh, as a writer while his, his first wife was teaching um, not for the WPA, but she was just, uh, I think she was teaching at a university and um, he was writing and taking photographs on the side. But the other interesting thing, I think the relationship between his photographs and especially the early work that we're reading today, I mean, the first two stories are 1951. So he would have been 41 when those were published, but those are, those are two of his early, we read, I think the second and third published short stories of his career and the disjunction between these very um, wonderfully composed, stark black and white um, kind of, you you think of almost maybe like uh, they would be like <laughs> if someone was taking some of these more classic like Dust Bowl photographs, WPA photographs that we're all familiar with, someone like turned and looked the other direction. Um, right. Morris's photographs might be those, you know, because they're not peopled. None of these photographs are peopled. And yet the quality of the short stories, I think that is so striking is that these people feel like to me, they could be out of any time. Um, they are so alive and the dialogue is so sharp. Um, and so the relationship between a real openness and eye and ear for American speech and American people and, and lives, as opposed to the photography's interest in place and, and not so much, uh, humans into the frame is, is really interesting to me. That's true. I think that from reading these stories, if I hadn't seen the photographs, I would assume that, um, that he would do portraiture, that he would be interested totally. in people's faces and gestures. Cause that's, um, it, um, so this is just kind of to move into the stories for a minute. Uh, 
he does this thing that I, I kind of started putting little penciled X's beside them because I kept noticing them like places where he just um, zigzags very quickly into another perspective, into another point of view. And there was one of them in these stories that I found very jarring, which was uh, in the um, the character of the lover where uh, so just for, for listeners to understand there's these two men um, and one of them, Dr. Hodler is going to a remainder bin and buying his own books because he likes this young man who is selling the books. And he thinks that by buying the books, he can get the young man to pay attention to them and will implicitly be educating him or be like sort of a good influence in this man's life. Uh the, the other man's name is Robert. And um, it's entirely in Dr. Hodler's perspective and a, you know, pretty close third person. Mm-hmm. And then um, he's, t- then Robert is talking about uh, Jay Gatsby, um, which is on theme for the episode of this podcast that just came out today when we were recording. Um, yeah. And um, okay. So, uh, what was he like, Robert said, and rose to his full height, waiting for Dr. Hodler to comment on the resemblance. When he didn't, Robert said, will you have lunch with me? Um, and I was, I was really struck by that because that was the first one that I noticed where he fully inhabits a different consciousness for a minute. Like that's a full perspective change out of Dr. Hodler's into Robert's mind, right? Um, but there are several others of these um, in the sound tape also. I I don't know that there are any in the um, in the third story we read, but um, it's an interesting move that I think writers are often urged not mm-hmm. to do because <laughs> it can seem like a lack of control. But mm. um, I also think that that the urge to do that, the urge to to show even a little bit more about what's going on inside characters' minds. It, it feels like a, a portrait taking urge. I, do you know what I mean? I think it, I totally do. And I think it aligns with the, the, the openness, the openness to having these characters be, uh, there's this quality, especially in, well, in both the first two stories, but I think in the character of the lover, especially maybe um, it's like the close third narration is it's like bemused, but that tips over into something else very quickly. And the the thing that it can tip over to over into is either uh, confusion or befuddlement or like joy. Yeah. And I think all of that is, is coming from a baseline of um, openness. And I, I know that sounds odd, but I think there, there's, there's a real openness in these stories that um, is striking to me because <laughs> it's funny, Catherine, I had marked that exact same paragraph, <laughs> hadn't, no, 
hadn't noticed what you just said and marked it for a different what reason. reason. I had marked it. This is the exact same thing yeah. that happened to us yeah. in the Monroe episode. Do you yeah. I had, I had marked it because rose to his full height, waiting for Dr. Hodler to comment on the resemblance was so funny to me as if he is standing up trying to look like, I mean, he's trying to, uh, he's trying to look like Gatsby in the moment, yeah. right? Or he's, and he's like, and the fact that the fact that that is that little moment is granted to that character. And it really only works because of what you're saying. It only really works because of that complete flip. But I mean, to me, that was just like such a brilliant note. I just loved it. Like you can, t- it, that paragraph added so much to the story to me, having, having the salesman kind of rise and, is he going to say I look like Gatsby? I mean, it's just like unbelievable. I was, I was, I love well, it. Um, it's also, it, it's like a really sweet moment of complicity between these two men because before that, um, everything is happening. So it's just like this fantasy in Dr. Hodler's mind that by buying copies of his own books, he's somehow educating <laughs> this man that he, uh, I mean, I, I would say he's attracted to him, right? Yeah. Like, I think that is that does that seem fair? Okay. Yeah. Oh, totally. All right. So, um, it's such like um, crush nonsense, but then the fact that, um, <laughs> that the other man, like the author, is just like, don't worry, he's into it, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, there is. <laughs> it's like he totally is taking these these um, series of book purchases in exactly the spirit they're intended, which is lovely. There is a sort of like, um, you know, when he's writing in the first person, like in the sound tape, um, I always get the feeling of like a kind of like avuncular, almost omniscience. There is this sort of like uh, kind um knowledge of all of his characters uh and i think it's characterized a little bit by i always feel a distance that he's kind of working through with his characters and i actually this is a little bit of extra reading but i wanted to read probably my favorite moment from the works of love really quick it's just like one paragraph the works of love is his i I think higley pointed it out um his novel, and it is, I guess it's kind of like a pan to his father. Uh, and it's about a sort of like a, a, a chicken magnate um, who then kind of goes on. He has a kind of like a long, it's a very sad book, but it's written in this very kind of colloquial way where there's a lot of these interjections like, well, you might think that Will Brady would go and do that, but he didn't. Um, but there is very late in the book when Will Brady, the main character, has been, he's living in Chicago, kind of estranged from his son. And um, he has a job at a train switching yard. And um, that's where, that's pretty much all you need to know. But in the windows along the canal, the blinds were usually drawn. And behind the blinds, when the lights came on, he could see the people in the rooms moving around. Nearly all of them ate at the back of the house, then moved to the front. There they would talk or sit and play cards or wander about from room to room until it was time, as the saying goes, to go to bed. 
Then the front lights would go off, other lights come on. A woman would stand facing the mirror and a man scratching himself would sit on the edge of the sagging bed holding one shoe, peering into it as if his foot was still there or letting it fall so that it was heard in the room below. And like that to me characterizes so much of what I read in these stories, which is like a character in a tower, like maybe several hundred yards away, like watching a very real discernible life from this sort of distance. And that to me is what I think makes his stories feel of their time. Like there's not like an embodied presence in the third person. It always feels slightly dilated, um, which I don't think is a bad effect, but it does feel slightly out of sync with contemporary fiction. And I, I, I can think of some other authors who use this type of uh, narrative distancing to like really good effect. One of whom, which I was surprised to think of is Joy Williams. I don't think that they have any necessarily legacy to each other, but like I think of Joy Williams as like the caustic and wrathful version of Wright Morris, like embodying this sort of wow. like, almost like godlike knowledge. Um, and and in the character of the lover, there I think there's actually a couple like shifts in POV where you get something from like Robert gives his pitch to like <laughs> which Oh, the, the line. Sorry, I have oh to one more line. Uh, it fell to Dr. Hodler. Where is it? Um, and it, it left Dr. Hodler to puzzle out for himself. What he had heard was Gatsby. Uh, Robert in this scene is embodying the sort of the spirit, the entrepreneurial spirit of Gatsby. What was Gatsby? What was Robert? And what was merely applesauce? <laughs> is this like, is this really amazing way of do, like, is this guy full of shit? Um but yeah, it, yeah exactly. it, there's another moment where like Robert is described as satisfied, which is something that you probably would only get from kind of like his central POV. Um, and so it, it, it sorry, I'm rambling. The, yeah, the one ahead. thing that, no, 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 you're not. Uh, I was going to say the one thing with the character of the lover, before we go back to the sound tape, that does feel very modern to me, I guess is, if you just look at information delivery in the story, the first paragraph lets you know <laughs> that the, the character that we are focalized through, this close third is focalized through Dr. Hodler, is going to a drugstore, buying his own book from the remainder table and trying to pitch it to this kid. But it's not that all of that is not dwelled upon. It's just in that first paragraph. And then you're off almost to the point where I had to go back and be like, wait, am I understanding this correct? The author of his own books is like, <laughs> it's so odd that you would expect there to be, I think from a lesser writer, a return to baselining that information. And that, that is a quality that Wright Morris has in all the stories I've and novels I've read. And I have, there's many that I have not read of his, but, he does not dwell as, as often as these characters seem odd or strange or uh, so specific that it gives you pause. He does not dwell in their peculiarity or their specificity. He deploys it and moves on. And I think that feels 
that's the quality of the work that feels Midwestern to me, even though, you know, a lot of his life was not spent in the Midwest and he was actually like a very like traveled man and spent a ton of time in Chicago and California. When you read like little sketches and stuff, so often they identify him as a Nebraskan. And to me, that feels of a piece with him being a Nebraskan is he sees these people, he'll tell you it, but he's not going to return to how strange that is, despite it being utterly insane. Um, I was thinking that one of the big surprises of the character of the lover is that it's supposed to take place um, in Manhattan, which it's, right. it's like, it right. does, it's like, is this something that could happen in Manhattan? I don't think it is. Yeah. But so quietly, well, right? Like, I mean, it's kind of shocking when he says like, oh, by the way, we're just going to go um, a couple of blocks to my apartment on Park Avenue, that this is where the um, it, Robert Gatsby, whatever, the, the guy who works at the drugstore, uh, where he lives there um, in this very, very strange apartment that's described in great detail. Yes. Oh my God. Um, it's going straight into the oddity without comment. Can we, I would love to linger for just a moment yeah. on this apartment. I, I want to just, I want to yes. just talk about one line before no, please, we go to please. the apartment. And that is <laughs> that like, okay, Dr. Hodler, whose books are being sold in a drugstore remainder table, but in enough quantity that he can go back and buy them several times. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Hodler was familiar with the type, meaning Robert. Um, and there had been a time not too long ago where he thought all of these idle, handsome young men were snobbish customers free to roam through the better class men's stores more or less as they pleased. He still found it hard to believe these casual creatures were clerks. I don't think that that's something that has ever happened in Manhattan. And maybe this is a failure of my imagination for not understanding. I I just don't, I don't see how that's possible. What are you saying? Tease that out a little bit more. I don't think that people could mistake the glamour of uh, men's store clerks for actual idleness. I think that there would be actual rich people around. It's hard for me to imagine that somebody who is educated enough to go by doctor and has several books out that are all in the remainder (laughs) bin could be, um, it could have this overlap of understanding of like handsomeness and youth with status of other kinds and also live that close to park Avenue where presumably there are lots of other status symbols around. You know what I mean? That's really interesting. It just, I totally know what you mean. I, I would never have arrived at that because in a way it does not feel like a New York story to me. It almost feels like, it could be anywhere but New York. That's what I'm in saying. The United States. <laughs> like when yeah, I said, like, oh, right. by the way, let's just go two blocks to my Park Avenue apartment. Because like, no. it doesn't feel it doesn't feel peopled. It you know, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like there's other people in the story. It feels like he's walking into an empty drugstore and there's Robert. And then he it feels like he's going up to the apartment. And then like later when he comes in the drugstore later in the story and he's talking to the manager about where Robert was, it's like I felt like they were the only two people in the drugstore at that point. It, 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 yeah. I think a lot of the stories kind of feel that way where it's like, uh, there's almost a, um, 
I was thinking there's like almost a little bit of like a Douglas Sirk quality to them. Like, uh, like not that they're not that they're melodramatic, but that you feel like an intensity between the people that are within the frame to the point where other people are excluded. The other, the, the, the rest of the world, you know, we're, we're in kind of a, like a lunetted reality and that the reality that we're given may be very, believable the way they're speaking may be utterly real but the edges are blurred and we're not so much aware of what's going on at the edges of this world i mean to me like amazing shut it down end the podcast right on (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) we're not gonna be yeah yeah but i don't know but i think i think that to me is why these like Yes, it's New York, right? But it's like, this is a Midwesterner writing New York. Not that it's not believable, but it's just like, yeah, I don't think a New Yorker would write it that way. Exactly. And I, I think that there is this Midwesternness that he carries into other places, but it's not, it's like somewhere between the Midwest and dream logic, where you could buy Oof, there's a title copies of, you can you know write the right morris book that's good copies of your own book and the person you have a crush on would successfully like hear you loud and clear they would understand exactly what you're getting at you know it's such a weird story it i so love it so weird. much well and he chooses the name robert gollin i mean that is like that's like a name i would text willie like this name is like just like 15 degrees off. I'm just going to text you a random name, Robert Gollin, and I, I'm choosing it for myself. It's not believable. I, you would never choose that name for yourself. It's the best. Like, why? <laughs> what, one thing you, you said that really kind of resonated for me, Catherine, is, is, yeah, that like this feeling of like dream logic. Like there is this sense that like all of these stories to me feel like they're sort of like teetering on the edge almost of allegory in the sense that of like we're in a discernibly realistic world but there is a like an engine above or below the story that is sort of guiding these characters in this way it doesn't have i think the as legible a sort of psychological realism as what we're sort of used to in a lot of contemporary fiction, although they're with, with some notable exceptions. Totally. There's something about the combination of, yeah, like his distance and the sort of oddness of certain things. The, the apartment that I was kind of alluding to earlier is just literally a huge. Describe uh, the apartment. Yeah, Willie, read like, it. I'll you should read I that can, little paragraph. I, I, I mean, well, it's amazing. Is, what, what makes it odd is, I'll, I'll read it, but it's not just, what makes something odd in really good writing is not just one detail. It is a second contradictory detail that nevertheless makes sense within the same scene. So in this, Dr. Hodler emerges into Robert's apartment And uh, Dr. Hodler turned to face on a low platform, an enormous rose-colored bathtub. He had seen such a tub. He had been in it, in a Victorian tourist mansion in Mexico City. And along with the tub, there had been an arboretum and a pair of chained birds. At the far end of the room, like a faint blue lantern, a narrow ventilating window opened onto an air well, letting in the hushed roar of the traffic on Park Avenue. As an aside, that was the first time I realized that this was in New York. 
And then it goes on. They, they have a kind of very brief conversation. And then Robert, um, I hope you like shrimp salad, Robert said. And Dr. Hodler turned to say he simply loved shrimp <laughs> and to see that a card table had been placed over one end of the tub. There was room for two folding chairs with stainless steel frames and soft leather backs and seats. Dr. Hodler had seen them in a window at Abercrombie and Fitch. Over the table, Robert had, split a, had spread a cloth with monogrammed napkins to mark their places. And at each place was a Danish silver knife and fork. Paper spoons stood up in a Steuben glass. So it's like this guy lives in a kind of ratty apartment. His studio, his apartment is a bathroom over which he places a card table. And I feel like in the hands of a lesser writer, that would just be a sort of a simple portrait of kind of abject poverty. And Wright Morris is like, no. He also has extremely expensive folding chairs and Danish silver that you learn slightly later in the story that he keeps in a tarnish proof flannel case. And he is like all about the finest things in life that he can afford in his, in his like bathroom apartment. <laughs> it's so, it's so it just, weird. Like, and it is, it never remarks. I love it so much. Like Dr. Hobbit is <sighs> like, there's no moment where he's like, what sort of person divides an apartment building in such a way? Like it is literally just glanced and moved on and you just have to like sit with the weirdness. Yes. And then the next paragraph, I mean, I don't know if I can read it without laughing is the shrimps plural as Dr. Hodder remembered they were, <laughs> were very good. Like, it's just like, to me, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I, it doesn't get better than this for me. I just love this shit. Unbelievable. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to wrench us out of the shrimp scene here too. um, Mm, mm. Harshly. (laughs) But the end of the story, I I want to talk about the end of the story in the context of the other two stories also, because I don't think that the story's ending is quite a standalone. The end of the, the story, the, um, the Gatsby character uh, goes he joins the Navy after losing his job at the, he, he loses his job for in a sort of courtly manner, slapping a um, Nazi. And then he joins the Navy and um, uh, our, our Dr. Hodler is um, looking at casualty lists, expecting to, to find uh, Robert's name. He, he believes he'll die. So, essentially it's sort of killing the character the main the the characters die at the end of uh, the sound tape and um then at the end of the cat in the picture there's also this kind of i mean i don't even know what to call it at the end of the cat in the picture I, that was the first of these stories that i read and it just knocked me sideways um but all of them have sort of an act of violence at the end in a sense and off screen. It's off screen. It is never the result of psychological realism that you were saying. And I don't think that we're meant to read into these acts of violence psychologically exactly. But it's striking in what's otherwise such a gentle and open dream 
I think it's also what makes these stories feel of the world to me um, in a, in, in a more direct way is like, it doesn't feel out of uh, it doesn't feel out of the character of any of the three stories that they end the way they do with violence uh, because the violence feels of a piece with with anything that's happening that it's a little bit happenstance and you kind of feel like I don't know it to, to me to me it does feel of a piece with what has come before even though what has come before is mostly just like banter in all of the stories yeah. I mean really these stories are like fantastic banter the first one is banter between neighbors. The second one is between a clerk and a customer. And the third one's between husband and wife. I mean, it's, it's like, they're just brilliant stories about people talking mostly. I agree. I think that the one where the, so the, uh, in the sound tape, the act of violence is that this man kills himself and his young child because he's so upset about the um, president that he believes is going to take all his money and it, yes. sound tape is the the genius story of the three. Really, opinion. I would have said cat in the picture is the genius story of the three really? for me. This is this is how they hit me. But you you say your thing, I'll say my well, thing. Well, initially, I think the character of the lover is maybe my favorite because it's the funniest to it's me. Really it's like the one where I most I felt like closest to it. But when I reread the sound tape. And like full disclosure, I had talked with Willie and I was like, what's your favorite? And he's like, I don't know, sound tape's my favorite. And I went back and I read it. After he told me it was his favorite, I reread it again and I was like, oh, shit. And to me, the sound tape has the, is the most ambitious and pulls off the most. Whereas like the character of the lover is a very small story in a way that I admire so much. It's like, I feel like its aims are like very localized and it achieves them. And then the cat in the picture does feel like the most old fashioned, right? Willie, you had said that before. I think that like, it's, it's the one that, that feels like the most, uh, I don't know, of another time. Yeah, I think maybe. the cat in the picture um, feels to me like it's almost like a ghost story that is, mostly the prequel and that like cuts off right at the haunting there is this like sort of sense of the the visitation of the cat as the symbol of the conflict between husband and wife which is then sort of like transformed in a kind of brutal way into uh i read that as just purely a not purely but primarily a um can't think of the right word, but a almost like a prosecution against the captain, who is the sort of the the guy who's responsible for the cat's death. Um, and so that to me feels very again another story that like feels nearly allegorical in its not in its execution, but in its sort of seen from thirty thousand feet shape. You know, it's like, um, but it, yeah, go on. I think one thing that felt very of the time that it was written to me is how much the the main thing is left unsaid. Very true. You know, like the um, refusal to name the abortion in the Hemingway story. It's like that kind of thing. The degree to which 
um, the the story elides every single thing that counts, but it also makes it clear enough that um, that you know what's going on. And then I think that your analogy to a ghost story is really right on. It also, I think this is maybe one of the things I like about it is I think that literary short stories, this is something we've talked about sometimes, I think literary short stories uh, in some ways depart from the joy of advice columns um, or... This is my favorite take. You know, just like reading. The thing that like opened my eyes so wide. I was like, (laughs) oh my God, advice columns are short stories. Like it kind of, uh, yeah, I I still have not repaired my skull from this. Uh, I was so afraid she was going to start talking about Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) Um, Hey listeners, if you want red hot take, it is that Bruce Springsteen never had a blue collar job. Only ever been (laughs) a rock star. And... um, in the 19th century, there were way more short stories in magazines because short stories were essentially like advice columns, <laughs> uh, which true, are inherently right. fun to read about people's nonsense, their their crush nonsense and their marriage nonsense. It's fun to read about. It's interesting. And if it ends up with a cat gets murdered in a suitcase, um, do you guys think that she killed the cat do you like do you think that the cat was still alive when when it went into the suitcase or do you think that the cat died and then she put it into the suitcase oh oh my god that's not what i thought you were asking that's such I, a I more nuanced question dead. wait what <laughs> at, like at the vet well i mean at the end of it well isn't there speculation at the end of it that as if it was alive that was the whole thing let's see i'm gonna read wait, the end um, so listeners can come up with their own okay uh, this is the last paragraph of the story. He awoke from the dreamless sleep, strangely refreshed. Creepy. All right. Uh, he shaved, then removed the clothes that he had slept in and opened the bag that his wife had packed for him. Several shirts were neatly spread out on top. He put the shirts in a drawer and then removed the layer of pajamas, shirts, and socks and stood there with a pair of socks in his hand, gazing at the long, flattened body of the cat. The bottom side of the socks he held were still warm. The bloody teeth, the bloody scarlet color from the tube of paint was still on the cat's teeth. A practical man, the captain wondered if the cat had died while eating the paint or if it had been stuffed into the bag with his shirts while still alive. The living part of the picture his wife had always wanted him to paint. I mean, it's great. It's great. It feels very not, it feels very not, of the, it doesn't feel like Wright Morris to me in, in how dramatic it, it feels. <laughs> I mean, it's great, but it doesn't really feel like the rest of his endings in a way the, because I, re- I guess in one way, now that I'm looking at it again, the violence is like in scene here, even though the actual act isn't in scene, like the fact that there's still warmth where he, you know, the captain is speculating whether or not the body, the, the cat was put in while alive. That feels the violent act is still in like, there's remnants of it in scene. Yeah. Whereas in the, in the previous two stories, it's, that's not the case at all. Well, really. And he also keeps on um, being violent to the cat. Like he, it does happen in scene that we see the cat bite the paint and we see him. That's true. And like throwing the paint to you're yeah. right. You're right. Um, 
and kicking the cat. Sorry. He, he has a lot of ways of excusing himself for what he's actually doing and for pretending that he's not actually doing what he's doing. It's a strange story. I mean, we could say it about all three and be right, but it is a really strange story. I mean, as it started, I, the first, the opening paragraph is beautiful in a way that doesn't really is beautiful and odd in a way that doesn't really lend itself. It doesn't, doesn't really lead you to anything of what the story is going to become. I'll, I'll read a little bit of it because it's, it's good. On retiring from the service, the captain rented a studio near the river overlooking the harbor and took up painting watercolors. He arose at seven, put on the water for coffee, prepared the still life of fruit he would paint that day, then called his wife for a leisurely breakfast. The captain's wife, a frail woman in her 40s, wrote book reviews for an Indiana paper and passed the day reading and listening to classical programs on the radio. At four o'clock, the captain served tea with either lemon or cream in the English manner, which he drank from a large china bowl that he held cupped in his hands. The steam from the tea fogged his glasses and gave a ruddy glow to his face. While the captain relaxed, his wife would sometimes read from the book she was reviewing, as his tastes were wide for a military man. He favored travel books that touched on the places he had been. He would often interrupt the reading to point out some small error of fact. The captain himself had traveled widely in both the near and far east, but his wife had not been out of the States. He didn't care for the wives of other army men and the lives they led. His own wife was free, as he liked to say, to go on with the book she was writing and pass the time between her home in Indiana and New York. There's no sign in that. There's no sign in that. Hatred between them. And it's so odd. Like she's, they're living in New York. She's writing book reviews for an Indiana newspaper. Like the, I just, I don't know. It's enough. That's enough to grab me. Like, I think the thing about Morris that is true of all the stories of all his writing is like, he's up to something. He's always up to something. Like you read the opening of that and you're like, what the fuck? Like, what are you up to? What are you doing? (laughs) Like she lives in New York. She's writing book reviews for an Indiana paper. Like what? what are you setting me up for? And it may not be the thing you expect, but he's certainly up to something from the beginning of any of these pieces. And just to continue slightly further on from where you were reading, um, as he lacked both talent and imagination, he had taken a lively interest in painting when he discovered these faculties were not necessary. And I love that. That was so good. Um, and yeah, I was maybe three or four pages into this story thinking, what am I reading? I'm just reading about a chill and pleasant life between retired people who have hobbies and, you know, and then it became obvious that it was actually a story of violent boiling hatred. Oh my God. I think the the what am I reading quality can be applied to the sound tape though. And I think the sound tape is the one that reads the most like other Morris. I think that's the one where like, if you were going to read one of the three and think like, what does this guy really, is he up to? I think the sound tape is the one that seems and sounds and feels the most like other Morris to me. Um, the... I mean, I'll just read the opening paragraph to so the listeners can hear it because I, I think this is kind of the kind of um, 
the, the way he gets into this is 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 I think indicative of the way he gets into a lot of his work. I've lived across from the porters most of my life. During the 20s, when it was fashionable to open developments that closed in the 30s, they built a chalet-type mansion across the road from my place. It was said to resemble something Mrs. Porter saw in France. We were not neighbors, however, as the Porter Chalet was the first house in the new development, and mine was the last in what is charitably called the old. The road between us, I suppose, is kind of a Mason-Dixon line. I, Yeah, and I think it's funny because reading the, reading this story, I thought so much of William Maxwell and the kind of particulars of um, suburban or at least non-city living of this time and the capacity to hold um, great specificity and strangeness. And it caused me to think about why someone like Maxwell is relatively widely read and why someone like Wright Morris who won two national book awards is like almost unknown. And it really is. I don't know. I, it was, it was, I mean, I, that's, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here and I'm not asking a question, but I'll stop. Talking no, about. keep talking. You have more to say. <laughs> I, there's a there's an interview with there's an interview with Wright Morris that I read in uh, one of the, one of these books. It's uh, called Wright Morris Territory: A Treasury of Work, and there's a long interview in there where Wright Morris unprompted brings up William Maxwell and William Maxwell's success and and kind of great readership, and he says. Here, if we can edit out this gap while I quickly find it, Catherine. Sure, sure, no problem. Because it's actually really, it's actually really striking what he says. Uh, sorry. No, it's it's fine. Uh, oh, fucking kill me! I know how to use a book. You look in the beginning, and it tells you where the thing is. 95. Okay. Uh, okay. That is an astonishing, this is Wright Morris talking. That is an astonishing, disturbing fact to me. I'm supposed to be in a kind of Sunset Magazine closure of my life, you know, where people write rather pleasant reminiscences about their experiences. William Maxwell does some of this stuff very well. He's a very good writer. But basically, that's one reason why I was anxious to get into this type of publication, because I was simply, because I simply will take any chance rather than feel that the work is just going to disappear from view. And I think it's interesting to think about the success and like lasting legacy of something like So Long See Tomorrow, as opposed to none of Wright Morris's work being a household name and and I think I think some of the quality of it is that a little bit to do with what Willie was saying, where there is a distance. <clears throat> and if anyone comes to the fore in these stories, even in a first-person narration, it's not the first-person narrator, it's the other people. 
And the sound tape is very indicative of that. It's Mrs. Porter. It's Eloise, the daughter. It's Mr. Porter. You're not going to bring up the narrator as being the one that really stays with you. And it's a quality that I think is somewhat unique for this kind of first person story. And that really differentiates Maxwell. In yeah. way. I was going to say the same thing. I was going to say that that distance, I think is, is probably the difference between them. And also I think that the lack of distance is it's like from the beginning of the 20th century to the end, it's like the camera of awareness just crammed right into the face of the reader slash character, whichever way you want to call it. I I think it's interesting that we're, that this is something I had not put it together until we started talking, but you know, it's, it's funny that um, in the character, the lover, um, the doctor, Dr. Holder is, characterize his neck because in the sound tape the narrator is very much a nick like is a is a nick caraway is sort of a a total kind of cipher um i mean nick has a little bit more going on than this narrator but in a short story um yeah there is this sort of sense that they are purely a funnel for the story to take place through. So they don't really have this kind of like lasting personality where I don't know that it's fair to compare this like 1951 story to So Long, See You Tomorrow, but So Long, See You Tomorrow, I think part of what makes that book so indelible is that the first person is very much part of the project of sort of the confessional, sort of like laying out like what I Mm -hmm. did or did not do. So, you know, the drive to exonerate Mm -hmm. and... Uh, persecute yourself kind of twined into one whereas the sound tape feels very much like well here's something that happened like there's there's not this sense that like his witnessing or something which also feels like a very late 20th century type of dynamic like we can't just have a first person narrator tell a story we need to have a first person narrator grapple with telling that story like grapple with the weight of witness in a way that's very productive, but it does make the sound tape to a reader 70 years later. I think my first time through, I was like, oh, okay. Like that. Yep. There we go. Like, um, yeah. And I think that the threat there is that it will feel like an anecdote. Um, And I think that that's like something that, that short stories like they really have to grapple with uh is it's like the the threat that's always at the edge of every short story is that it would be an anecdote um that's so sharp i mean but i think like that is really like the morris problem for people who for someone who is going to pick this up and and be uh predisposed to to not like it i think it would be someone who would maybe come in with that view like I mean, all right. Okay. You got some weird neighbors. Like to me, I only want to read stuff like that. I only want to read stuff that is like close to anecdote. I love, this is, this is what I'm like predisposed to love, but I think, I think what you're saying is so true. I think a a lot of readers would have that issue and you would never have that issue with Maxwell, especially in the case, like Willie is saying with 
so long see tomorrow because of the nuanced quality of that first person narration and constantly bringing into the reader's mind well this is my memory is it true i don't know also you're getting a very created pop from a dog in the in the last third whatever there's a very kind of like made quality to it whereas this stuff is reading much more like like here's the thing that happened here's the thing that happened and also i think the ambition is buried a little in a way i think some of the genius of the writing is buried a little if you gave it to someone and said just look at the dialogue i think it would be clear to someone who was a was a constant reader i mean the dialogue to me is just like a master class i mean but I think it's very easy to miss what is brilliant about these stories for the reason that you said, Catherine, and I never would have thought of that. It, but you're right. It mm-hmm. does teeter on anecdote. I actually, I want to read one section from the sound tape, if that's okay with you, um, that, love it. Um, yeah. that I think is complicating the narration in a way that I found interesting. Um, okay. Uh, there were also other changes. And when it became clear that Mrs. Amory Porter would soon be a mother. It was assumed that Mr. Porter had little to do with it. He had fathered the child, so to speak. (laughs) He had fathered the child, so to speak, by a legal transmission of the pollen, but in every matter that counted, the flower would be hers. So my first question is, who assumes that? It was assumed. So the narrator is reporting an assumption, but whose assumption is it? And where does it come from? It's it's unclaimed assumption. Um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Porter more or less said so himself. So in other words, Mr. Porter is maybe the person who has this assumption. Uh, he was the first to joke about the matter. And when it talk got around to the child, he would make that characteristic washing gesture with the hands, rubbing the dry palms together as if he stood before a fire. But so is that a washing gesture? It it seems like the narrator is reading into what Mr. Porter is saying significantly with his own mm-hmm. assumptions. And I don't think that what we're getting is Mr. Porter. I think that what we're getting is a lot of the narrator and maybe even a larger consciousness than that. That's like the town. Um Uh, I didn't see Mrs. Porter that winter, but every day I drove past the house, I felt that I observed a change in it, which again, it's just the outside of a house and it's, there's no signal that the reader can decide if the uh, narrator is correct or not about what the narrator is assuming. Um, Mm As a last resort, it amused me to think Mrs. Porter had got around to changing her house by altering insofar as possible, the inhabitants. So again, the, the narrator is just guessing things about the outside of a house that is closed. Um, Eloise, as the child was named, was born in March. On the balcony, when the weather was pleasant, I sometimes saw the nurse with the hooded carriage, and I read the paper in the paper that Mrs. Porter had returned to life. Her name appeared on the usual committees, and her voice was heard at the usual parties. Uh, Mr. Porter no longer came home on the four, uh, 448, the train. Uh, he was in as usual, but he came home at one o'clock. Early in May, I came home early myself, as there were things to do around the house. And when I reached the Porter house, I saw him wheeling something up the drive, a baby carriage, the perambulator I had seen on the balcony. When I stopped, 
I think I stopped to ask him what was the trouble. He wheeled it up so I could peer into it from the car. Eloise at the time was about 10 weeks old. But the connection between the child and the carriage and the man who was pushing it was more than a resemblance. I felt that I was looking at Porter himself. It was as if right before my eyes had time right before my eyes had unraveled and the old man who stood before me layer by layer until nothing remained but porter seed itself in swaddling clothes the porter essence was there in the perambulator porter knew this he had wheeled the carriage up so to speak in order to prove it and all the proof he needed was found on my face without waiting for me to speak or to recover he wheeled her off um so that whole paragraph to me has the narrator assuming that the only reason that the dad would be pushing the stroller is because there's a problem, like something's wrong. This is bizarrely out of the norm. Um, And is having this entire conversation with Porter about why he's looking after his baby that can only be explained by the baby having an unusually strong Mm -hmm. resemblance to the dad but the narrator is just <laughs> it's like the porter isn't saying any of those things uh, yeah again i had marked that paragraph <laughs> for maybe a slightly different but but a lot of it is really in line with what you're saying because i think it speaks to what willie was was mentioning before and that there is kind of a this is a first person story, but there is kind of a omniscience uh, awareness of the town kind of quality, regardless what POV we're in with Morris and that he seems to register and care about what the, the, the norm or the, like the town baseline feeling is about these people. And it helps to characterize them. Mrs. The characterization of Mrs. Porter is done in that way where we're talking about how she is, she's constantly, you know, getting all these different kinds of pets and then all these different kinds of pets are dying because she, as she sets them down on the ground after holding them and calling them babies, she forgets about them. And then this very woman is getting pregnant and you're like, Oh God. And yet the, the narration sets you up to believe that this would truly be her project. This would be her, her great life's mission. But then I think the genius move is in the paragraph that you just read in that he, he gently nudges you into, no, this, this baby actually looks exactly like Mr. Porter. And so as a result, it becomes his task, his life's mission to deal with it. And so there's like a strong hand within this first person, uh, to do very non-first person type moves, it feels like more of a a third person type move to to direct in this way. I and and a kind of other consciousness operating. Um, but the other thing I had marked in relation to those was like, I think one of the things that Wright Morris is is he's mm-hmm. brilliant in transition, uh, and you know the, what you had just read, Catherine. Mrs. Porter had gotten around to changing her house by altering, insofar as possible, the inhabitants. That's such a striking end to a paragraph. And you think, what does that mean? What could that possibly mean? And it, uh, and honestly, the story doesn't truly answer that question in a way. I, I think 
I don't even know what that means. I, I think there's a kind of mysterious quality to that, that, that edge. And I think, uh, anyway, I'm going on and on. No, but- that, um, it, it's, it is mysterious because the only thing that changes is the narrator's assumptions about how this family would divide labor, but there's no reason to think from the outset that's like, well, there's this very responsible um, kind of like lean into the schedule kind of father and this extremely irresponsible mother, like it makes, and, and the father doesn't have a job. He he goes into the office, but his office is just like being rich, you know? Um, so, but it's like you were saying with the other story, which I had is, is a reading I wouldn't have arrived at is that in the same way that the, the, the assumptions of the, in the paragraph you read in uh, the character of the lover, where there's a kind of, there's a kind of assumption. And then that assumption is actually being met and granted by the clerk in that story. Yeah. Uh, Hodler and Robert are actually like fulfilling each other's realities that's happening here because uh, the narration, the first person narration is, 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 is guiding so much of what is happening with Porter and what's going to be possible. But then Porter takes up the mantle, you know, he takes the ball and he's running with it. And he actually like goes way further than you'd expect. I mean, where this, where, where the actual story goes is like, it becomes Porter's entire life to, to teach Eloise and to, to, to be her caretaker. And Mrs. Porter drops off. I, I completely agree. I think, I think the only place where it stuck out to me as a place where the narration was intrusive because I don't think that Porter necessarily assumed the same things as the narrator going in. I don't think that Porter necessarily decided to be the the baby's primary caretaker because of her resemblance to him. Maybe it was because his wife is constantly killing pets, you know, like maybe because his wife is like, <laughs> extremely irresponsible and he doesn't have a job and that this is something that he can do and do a good job of. Um, like there's, there's many reasons that are hidden inside what feels like a really strong set of assumptions from the narrator that are like everything that the narrator is saying, like, Oh, well, Porter assumes that he will not be involved in his child's life because he rubbed his hands together. Um, and it's like, is that, are we sharing this assumption as readers that that's what that gesture means, you know, Um, maybe, and maybe not. And I think that that's one of pretty few places in these stories where it feels like there's a gap between the narrator and what the narrator is telling us. Do you know what I mean? Like that there's, there's room as a reader to live between the characters and the narrator and to not just be in the narrator's, uh, jacket pocket I think you know it speaks to some of the that that's a real dream logic moment in that if nothing else what else can bridge that gap right I mean I think there is kind of a uh, that'll either trip you up as a reader or you'll go with it because when you actually do parse it like we just did you're like wait what? yeah what? <laughs> yeah What's what, what what's the motor that allows that to continue on? What are we talking about? Because, like you said, it 
it really is a series of assumptions by this first person narrator that are transferred onto the other character and then become reality. And then that yes. reality becomes the basis for all the actions that carry through, through the rest of the story. And the actions that carry through through the rest of the story, I think are like, like the trick or treating moment with Eloise is like beautiful. I mean, like, it's like, it's like, to me, ah, I love it. I mean, and the I, detail, and I think the, the quality, the, the detail in the trick or treating scene that made me think that, um, that this was going to lead to a sticky end was um, mm. that she was wearing the lining of her father's coat. Ugh. As her witch costume. There's that. And there's one other moment early on when, or maybe it's actually in that same scene where, oh God. Well, while I can't find it, we keep talking about the, I keep talking about the dialogue this di- you have to hear this dialogue, everyone. You have to hear this. That's a wonderful costume, Eloise, I said, carefully screening my language. You're supposed to give me something, she said. Oh, I said, what would you like? How, uh, how about a piece of cake? I'd rather have money, she said, if you don't mind. That sent me back a bit, but I said, is it customary to ask for money? Father said, if he's elected, we'll all be begging, she said. Well, there's a much chance of that, I said. Is there? We stood there while she thought. I could see that she thought there was not much chance, but that she had been impressed by what she had heard. Father said, if he's elected, he's just going to give up. If he's elected, Eloise, I said, sounding quite a bit like her father. It means that most of the people in the country voted for him. It means he may not be your man, but he's our president. When she didn't reply to that, I said, well, how do you feel about it? It was out before I knew it. What reason is there to go on in a world like that, she said. Was that her father? I wasn't sure it was. There's that moment. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, he grants, Morris grants Eloise, like, so much there as a child. I mean, I think one of the ways that this story really is, the sound tape is deceptive, is that it doesn't, I think there's a very plausible reading that this is a, you know, like Porter is showing his child as a sort of a demonstration of paternity, um, like the first person narrator's desire of Mrs. Amory, which is also like, it's an Amory, amorous, like a more like, it's one of these names that, again, starts tripping into this allegorical, uh, she's described as sort of like a generously endowed woman with like the sort of like a, like a Greek goddess. It's very clear that this first person narrator is uh, desirous of her um, and they have this sort of like extracurricular uh, friendship which is never elaborated upon um, and so there is a way I think there's a plausible reading of the story as just sort of the as being told by like a sort of jealous lover like a jealous or or would-be lover like a jealous neighbor like um, absolutely and the, the detail of 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 him being basically south of the Mason-Dixon line that his street demarcates, I think is, it, it brings something kind of like class into it. Um, I think the story like, and that would explain for me the slightly odd pace of it, because like, it really does feel it's like, 
we get into the story, we have their house, we have a little bit of the husband, but then there's a great deal of description of the wife. And so you're like, okay, so that's where this is going. But then the story tacks back and go, and the wife basically disappears. Like there is this sort of, um, until, until the, uh, her husband and her child are gone, uh, towards the end. Um, she is like, so obviously the objective narrative focus in the first half of the story. And then, uh, she is essentially replaced by Eloise, who is this sort of precocious, another, like, again, I, I, I feel like I'm really, I could be grasping at straws here, but Eloise also feels like a Joy Williams character. Like Mm -hmm. she feels like a precocious, like she really does spooky child who has come to render judgment on the sort of like, uh, morally flabby adults around her. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's one reading of it. I mean, I think this is, but that's like such what, if, if that is his intention, it is strikingly subtle. I think, uh, given how, um, how the story seems to kind of move in, um, very kind of like it like lurches to different things. Um, like it lurches from the wife to the husband or to the child and then to the husband. Um, and it has a sort of episodic quality that I think is characteristic of the little bit of like the works of love. Uh, again, great book, but it is intensely episodic. And it is the the dedication to it is actually made out. It's made out to dedicated to Sherwood Anderson, um, oh. who, who, and and that's another thing. Like it feels like Wright Morris. Um, the name we haven't brought up, and the name that I always want to talk about is Tom Drury because he this this book feels said earlier, yeah, of, of a Tom of a Drury uh, um, follows our podcast on Twitter. Love you, Tom. Don't Tom, know you, but Tom. love you. Yeah, no, we're we're Tom, we thrilled. Love you. It's like one of our favorite facts about having a podcast. Why have a podcast if not to get Tom Drury to follow? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, but they have, if they I have had a, a similar... podcast, I would simply have Tom Drury follow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this uh, this story, the sound tape is a little bit tighter than I'm making it out to be. I, I do think that there is a sort of um, you know, like the contemporary short story is they often feel like kind of causality machines, like whatever happens in the first page kind of ripples through. And then at the end, you know, that the sort of the truism of like, we want a story that an ending that is inevitable, but surprising, basically what you're asking for is, is cleverly designed causality or a, a disguised causality. And these stories don't have a contemporary sense of causality in that sense, that's so like, smart. That's a really so smart like, point. Yeah. His obsession with Roosevelt, <laughs> uh, or, or, or Truman, excuse me. Mm-hmm. It, it, I guess this would be in the, the Dewey versus Truman. Um, but he was upset about Roosevelt earlier. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's writing, uh, Mr. Porter is writing anti Roosevelt literature. And then now he's, he's, you know, kind of, he's convinced that Dewey's going to win. Um, and uh, Truman's surprise win is what drives him to kind of commit suicide with his with his young daughter sorry spoilers um 
I think we've already mentioned that 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 is what happens, right? I'm gonna okay, good. I'll Thank describe God. it in the in the like podcast okay. intro anyway. The sound tape, um, like the 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 causality engine, if we can kind of pick that up, is it really doesn't like get kicked on until like very late in the story, and so like it it um it kind of dissembles what the story is about, which I think accounts for this, the opening maybe half or two thirds where you're like, okay, I think I know this is about like the rich people across the street. No, now it's kind of about like the kind of sexy neighbor across the street. No, now it's about her like pets. And like, there is a sense of like, you're not totally, um, it doesn't make its project known in the way that I think the modern short story does. And I think that's something that's extremely cool. Well, there's one um, more zigzag in the story than, than you mentioned. There's one last zag back to Eloise where it's this memory of her saying, it's not a matter of feeling, Mr. Brady. She said, it's what you think. As usual, Eloise was right. So far as I know, she was never wrong. What do you think that means? Because again, causality machine is I, breaking down to my mind here. Cause I don't. Well, I think that points directly back to the line that we focused on because of, to me, it seems like the way it's written by Morris is like underlining. So what reason is there to go on in a world like that? She said, was that her father? I wasn't sure it was to me. That last line connects to that in a way that it's like, okay, I may not be the agent of my death here. My dad is, but at the same time, she is aligned with him. She is his sound tape. She's his echo. And in a way, even if the thought is hers, it was his, the death is his, it's hers. I feel like it aligns along that and I honestly don't think the cause, as as Willie keeps saying, the I don't think the causality really kicks in until that line later because we don't. Although we see that Eloise is you know precocious um, and able to kind of act independently in a way, even though her acting independently is her parodying her father. That moment from the narrator wondering whether or not the thought was hers or her father's is the first time it's like really like, oh, she's her own person that connects up with the ending where her thoughts are thought of as her own. I don't know if she was ever wrong to me that those are the only two moments in the story where she's isolated out as her own person. And so I connected them for that reason. See, I, I sort of thought of it. I, I think I chose like a, a similar but sadder reading, which it actually kind of reminds me to go back to our last episode again, a friend of my youth where like the sort of the subtle kind of puncture of that phrase is in the Monroe story. It says they were all friends of her youth. And the implication being that like she had no friends after that, like her youth was this sort of. So I, I chose I choose to read that last line. So far as I know, she was never wrong, almost as she never got old enough to be wrong. Like she yeah. was always in this sort of childlike saying exactly what she was supposed to by her father. And so she, mm. he essentially robbed her of the, the, the luxury of being her own fallible human being. Mm. Um, I like that reading. Yeah. I think that's a good reading. And I also think that it connects to the, uh, the cat 
story, which I liked so much, uh, because I think that uh, the infuriating thing that the husband is doing in the cat story over and over is he um, he's always just telling people what he thinks about everything, which I guess they didn't have the word mansplaining in those days, but I think that's pretty clearly <laughs> the thing that drives his wife to this degree of, of hatred. Um, like interrupting her reading aloud from books that she's trying to review to tell her the true facts about these places that he's been and she hasn't and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure that this is the, in the story's logic, the thing that is the problem with him, uh, as well as his lack of talent and imagination and, and all that. Um, but in this case, the Mr. Porter being the kind of person who's always just telling people facts that he's sure they're un, that they wouldn't know. Uh, he preferred to sit alone while commuting, but there were times when he found himself comp- compelled to stand in the aisle or take a seat beside me. As he had paid for this seat, he always took it without troubling to open the discussion or indicating that he knew who it was that sat beside him. He would share some strange lore he had stored away, the air distances between the capitals of the world, the reason for the smallness of French equestrian armor, or the meaning of the serial numbers to be found on the sides of freight cars. He spoke on all these matters with an air of authority, knowing that his listener would be poorly informed, which led most people to think that he was merely a kind of cybernetic marvel full of facts and figures waiting to be tapped. I found it hard to explain the touch of covert sympathy I felt for him. Um, what a great last line to that paragraph. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and uh, the, 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 the person who does tap that resource is the daughter. And she has the same passion for sort of unconnected knowledge. Uh knowledge without purpose or curiosity, even just like knowledge hoarding. And, um, and it seems like, like she's, she's the victim of that way of thinking. She's the casualty of his certainty and his lack of curiosity and certainty that everyone else knows less than him. Um, that lines up so well with Willie's reading. Yeah. Um, so I think that the fact that she is actually convinced that the world would hold nothing for her if Truman is elected. That pretty dark. Um, it, it feels similar to the circumstance that led to the cat's death in the other story. that was our Wright Morris episode. Thank you to Alex and Willie for joining me here again and to Adam Bear for our music to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. Thank you listeners for listening and for rating and reviewing us over at Apple Podcasts or uh, write to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com Goodbye till next week.